want to give thanks to one of our sponsors, Cyto Defend. Look, at a time like this, I think that our immune system and keeping our immune system up right now is more important than ever. I can also tell you that I pay attention to the things that keep my immune system on par and healthy. So, so glad that Cyto Defend is one of our sponsors here on Cell TV. And it's a product that I use, my family uses, and hopefully you'll check it out. And by the way, you can check it out with the link right here below. If you want to try a free bottle, you can actually get a free bottle. Just pay the shipping. And I think you'll reorder after that. But check it out. If you're listening to this podcast and want to access the amazing CytoDefend product Dr. Pompa just mentioned, please visit freeimmunity.com. Again, that's freeimmunity.com. Well, Nisha, welcome to Cell TV. I, I'm very excited. I'm very excited to hear your story because um, I've heard, you know, about you and about your story. And uh, you reminded me actually that we met at Low Carb USA briefly, right? Yeah, yeah sure so. did. And we were also laughing because we apparently go to the same hairstylist as well, which makes me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> we were laughing off air because <laughs> I had just got my hair cut. You had just got your hair cut. And I was so tired of my hair being long. You moved to a warmer climate for three months, got yours cut, and we both showed up like this. I love it. I love it. The fresh start for the fresh yeah, year. I, I said you look like my sister. You do anyway. And then now that we have the same hair, I, I you know. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me here. I'm very excited to be here. Your work and your persona, I've been following, following for some time. So it's an honor to be here with you and your guests. Yeah, well, you have a great story, you know, and um, you're going to be actually, you're, you're actually one of the speakers um, at our next seminar in Nashville, um, which actually I, I should really tell my audience, uh, we're opening it up a whole day for the public. Um, and the reason is because of the, the main topic is cancer, which is our topic today. Um, and I think if we polled our audience, everybody here knows somebody very close to them, friend or family that with cancer or at least battled cancer. So this is a topic everyone needs to hear about. So we decided to actually open up a full day um, really around this topic. So uh, those of you who've been wanting to come to one of my seminars because they're only doctors, not anymore. You get the come. So uh, Ashley, I, I'm speaking to Ashley, who's up. She's <laughs> my team member here, but she's actually not on camera, but she hears me. But uh, we actually put that um, invite uh, here. But yeah, so you're one of the you're one of the guest speakers, and guess you you came recommended by so many people. And I, you know, one of the things I love is you know my stories from pain to purpose. And um, I said it today to one of my clients. You know, I can never even speak this way to you if I didn't feel what you feel. You know, go what you you know went through. Uh, it's many years now. I mean, twenty some years uh, since your story, like myself. You know, yeah. but still close to heart. I actually was speaking that to the person that you know I still you know, have this post-traumatic feeling sometimes when I think about that, and I'm sure you could reflect that, but tell your story. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just it. We were talking right before we went on that I had just uh, gone off after my 27-year out mark with a terminal diagnosis, not given any options, any opportunities to heal per se, and in some ways that was a lucky strike for me because it prompted me to 
look after myself. It prompted me to get creative. It prompted me to become resourceful. Now, you know, we didn't have Dr. Pompas at that time. We didn't have uh, webinars and resources. We didn't have Dr. Google. This is back no. in, in 1991, for crying out loud. Yeah, um, my gosh. And, she, but yeah. she looks amazing. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, like she'd be living back in 1991. You're so sweet. I appreciate that. There's your $20 bill. We'll carry on. <laughs> Um, but at that time in my in my life and my world, I actually tell people I look and feel healthier today at 47 years old than I did in my late teens and my 20s and my 30s because I learned how to care for myself exactly. And it was thanks to I love your concept of pain to purpose that put me on a journey of seeking for self care, which then turned into supporting others on the journey, and now is turning into supporting doctors to support others on the journey. But when you're given a diagnosis after many, many months of in and out of hospitals, ERs, and being misdiagnosed over and over, because of my age, you know, I was the zebra that we talk about in medicine, that no one was thinking um, ovarian cancer in a 19-year-old, right? So at that time, I've had a lot of health issues. I've had a lifelong of GI issues. I've had lifelong hormonal issues. So it all just blended into the murky soup of what I had known for the first almost 20 years of my life. So by the time they figured it out, that time I landed in the hospital um, with uh, what they thought I was having a, a, a terrible arrhythmia process. And what was happening when I walked in is a doctor who was on call that day happened to recognize the signs of end-stage cancer and wow. finally did proper testing, proper diagnostics, proper imaging, and realized that my electrolytes were so far off because I was so hectic, meaning my muscles were wasting terribly, um, meaning my belly was extremely bloated, full of fluid, uh, liquid um, cancer cells, basically, and that my organs had decided to go on strike. So my kidney and kidneys and liver had basically stopped working. Um, and at that point, I was so far gone, so sick, so malnourished, so hopeless in their eyes that they were even afraid that a single dose of, of chemotherapy would end my life abruptly. Mm. So they, at that time, told me I had three to six months. Now, as a doctor looking back, I realized I was probably closer to three to six weeks yeah. from what I know of the state where I was then. But as I was telling you before we dove in, or right the early part of our conversation, being told there's no other way pushes you to seek a way and pushes you to derive all the resources you can possibly muster up and I had to do it by myself um, and there was like I said I, I have the Dewey Decimal System I didn't have Dr. Google I didn't have resources online and back then the information obviously for treating cancer was incredibly limited um, and because I went to a very small um, financially lower to the ground for your liberal arts college, my library was also filled with kind of outdated textbooks, which was to my benefit because the main you textbook- You probably use something called microfiche. Do you remember? <laughs> microfiche, do we decimal cards? I mean, all of those things. It was crazy. But because of that, because of the old school way, I stumbled upon some literature from the 1920s and 30s by a guy named Otto Warburg. Wow, were you lucky or blessed and oh my Seriously. gosh guided you know I think is really is really it and so it made most sense to me of anything else I was running across if this was a metabolic process that knowing my background and where I was came unglued unhinged if you will over a period of time and I thought to myself well if I can get broken I can possibly get fixed now 
Mind you, at that time, I had no expectation of surviving this. What my expectation was, was learning as much as I could to understand and be present in the process. So each week, each passing week, each passing month that I happened to still be kicking it, um, I kept learning more and more. And I felt like every time I was alive another week or month, I'd stumble upon a new piece of information and then another and then another. And here we are 27 plus years later. And the times have changed so much, which is why I appreciate your conference you're getting ready to have. And that for about the past 25 years, we learned this much about oncology. And in the past, you know, five, six years, an explosion of what we're knowing and understanding and having a new way to look at it. We're still trying to function from kind of a broken, outdated model, but the conversation is there. And frankly, the hope is there for the first time that I've ever seen since I've been on this journey. Yeah. You know, I mean, I want to hear more. Okay. So a lot of people watching, um, I have interviewed, uh, and we can put those interviews up here. Uh, Thomas Seyfried, you know, who really took Warburg's work into the modern era, right? I mean, yeah. but th- same concept. In fact, his book is called Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. Um, that's what you discovered in, you know, from his work. So, okay, great. Uh, what did you do about it? So talk about some of the things that you did, because like you said, you were on your own. Totally. And I think about the work that you guide your patients through today. It was very much a very organic, simple process. The way I had been eating, um, a latchkey kids, standard American diet, first year college student living on ramen and boxed mac and cheese, not a single live piece of food in the mix. My first jump was actually to a vegan raw food diet because that's all the data that was out there. Now in my chemistry where I was, that was very beneficial at the time. It cleaned up a lot. I would, have, I would think it would, yes. <laughs> okay, like a lot. And in fact, because of the amount of ascites I had that had a belly that looked beyond nine months pregnant and had over nine liters of fluid pulled over a period of, of time, um, I didn't have room to eat. So I also naturally um, fasted a mm. lot because I didn't have hunger, which is part of the cachectic process. I didn't have room to fit food in a a small amount of real estate I had left um, from the fluid pushing against my organs. And I was very nauseous. I was very sick. My kidneys and liver were shut down. So I did not feel well. Food did not sound good. So a lot of that initial few first few months was a lot of fasting and then starting to eat live real food at that time, mostly in fact, all plants. And that made a a monstrous difference in that end stage game for me. But over time, that wasn't enough. Over time, I was still fighting the cancer. Cancer was still active in my body. It was still taking root. What I didn't know, even though I was learning about the metabolic approach or Otto Warburg's work, was that everything I kept putting in, all that well-meaning food, was also pretty much all sugar. Yeah, so and, stop, stop right there. Let, let's yeah. give you know, people that don't understand Warburg's principle or what I mm. interviewed Safe about, you know, without you know, confusing them in the science, uh, which we, you know, it's easily confused people here, but kind of tell them a little bit about what we're talking about, you know, is saying what was Warburg's theory? You know, what are we talking about? Why would sugar be such a negative to people, even healthy sugar? Explain that. Beautiful. Very simply, what I tell the people that I work with is that we were meant to be a, a hybrid engine. We were meant to be like human Prius. Okay. That's, that's what we were built to do. Until about 1850, the year 1850, we were all quote unquote low carb. 
which is a big kind of hot topic today. We ate about 30% of our calories from carbohydrate. That included fresh fruit, grains, honey, maple syrup, you name it, natural healthy sugars, up until we started milling and processing sugar and flour in the 1850s. So when the industrial food revolution came on, we were all low carbers. We had been functioning that way for millennia. Yeah. All right. So in a relatively short period of time, we overwhelmed our system, taking us from that hybrid engine of being able to burn fat or sugar as needed in our healthy cellular metabolism, depending on um, availability of our resources. We suddenly had our resources available to us all of the time and a lot higher amount. Okay. Yeah. That's the simple term. So what happened? happens at the cellular level is when you overwhelm the cells with that much carbohydrate, they basically start to ferment and not like the good sauerkraut fermentation. Okay. Um, how I tell my patients is our cells are meant to respire. They're meant to breathe, to move these biochemical processes to create our energy, our ATP. And as the, as the gas tank, if you will, gets gummed up, our mitochondria get gummed up, they start to ferment and they stop breathing. They stop respiring, which perpetuates the fermentation more, which then changes the environment around those cells, which then draws in more toxicity and more inflammation, yada, 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 then we have a problem. And so that's basically what Otto Warburg said is that the problem isn't like acidity in the outside body affecting a cell, it's what's happening at the mitochondrial level that starts to break down, that starts to change the communication to the rest of the body around yeah, it. But stop, stop right there because that's a very interesting point that, that drives me crazy in the cancer thing, right? So because of Warburg's work, we have everybody running around trying to alkaline and that's not what he meant. Exactly. He that acidity was the problem. He meant that the cell is going through this you know, process of using only sugar in the presence of oxygen when it should be using oxygen. That, that's what I'm saying. It's not breathing, yeah. as you said, right? Yeah. And therefore, it's creating this acidic environment. Well, yeah. you don't force the alkalinity down. You fix the cell to get well. And yeah. that's the, the point. So the whole alkalinity thing really took off on a false understanding of what Warburg's principle was. You got it. And I love that you brought that up because I look at the sort of push for alkalinity almost as bad as the push of just cytotoxicity because neither of them are addressing the problem. Neither of them are getting to the root. So you're, you're correct in that. And that also at the time in 1991, the only information out there was about the juicing and the raw food and the pushing alkaline diet. And that made me sicker and sicker and sicker after it initially rescued me. Then it, my body started to actually break down again. I ended up getting kind of a resurgence and an aggressive kind of pushback of the cancer over time um, of kind of trying to eat this alkaline way of being. And so from that is where I started learning more about, oh gosh, this is a sugar um, burning system problem versus being a dual engine problem. And that's when I started to really change my diet that it was still and still is today incredibly plant-based so I want people to hear is that I still eat 10 to 15 servings of vegetables right. every single day and I still maintain ketosis or metabolic flexibility in a profound way and I'm not eating that much meat okay so I want people to hear that too it's not a meat diet as it was promoted but eating a lower carbohydrate diet was the key for me and I will tell your listeners it took me even understanding that from a textbook level I was still going by the recommendations and the ideas of what a low carbohydrate diet was 
was. So at that time in the literature, and even in my early medical school training that I began in 1996, we were having diabetic patients on 150 grams of carbohydrate a day and telling them that was a diabetic diet. Guess yeah. what? That is only now changing today. <laughs> still 12 years or 22 years out, we're finally um, still having that conversation. But still eating quote-unquote low-carb for the diabetic patient in, in the 90s was still far too much sugar. For a lot, a lot of the studies that people say, well, the study on low-carb diet, uh, you, you look at the grams, it was 150, 180 grams of carbs, and that was a study they were doing on low-carb diet. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like, if I get 150 grams of carbs in, that's me purposely trying to hit high carbs for a day. <laughs> yeah, seriously, and that's hard when you haven't done it for so long. And so even the RD nutritionists are telling us that we should not max out of 100 grams of carbohydrate a day. And for men, 25 grams of that being sugar, and women, 20, excuse me, 20, 20 grams for women, excuse me, 25 grams for women, and 20 grams for men of sugar each day. We are doing that by the end of breakfast each day on the standard American heart healthy. A bowl of oatmeal, breakfast. a bowl of oatmeal, a bagel, and uh, God forbid, a bowl of uh, regular cereal. But I mean, exactly. you know, I mean, honestly, just uh, that alone. There it is. You've blown your carb, your, your carbs for the next two or three days with that in some cases, especially if you add a banana, some low fat uh -huh. milk, an orange juice. We're uh, done. <laughs> one glass of juice, right? I mean, uh, but it's 100% orange juice, though. Uh, uh, exactly. Exactly. So that you have to remember is we didn't have people like Dr. Um, Feynman and all these others out there sort of paving the way for us to understand. I mean, frankly, there wasn't much research and still isn't today in nutritional biochemistry. But because I happened to meet and fall in love with a biochemist at the time of my diagnosis, who was crazy enough to stick around at 22 years old with a 19 year old who now 27 plus years later, we're still together and married. Yeah, um, I was- He's in the other room because he's he an expert in epigenetics and genetics. <laughs> he's in the other he's room. He's in there consulting right now on some epigenetic cases. So this is what we do for fun at our house, Doc. <laughs> I but get that it. was someone who could actually walk me through the biochemical um, reasoning behind it because biochemistry, frankly, terrified me at that time. I made it through organic chemistry simply because I had a live-in organic chemistry tutor. Okay, <laughs> but but I understood physiology very well. That was my uh, cup of tea. Now, years later, I can look back and understand the biochemistry because we weren't taught in the way um, to help us understand how to apply it in real life, how to apply it clinically. Well, it's different when you have a need, you see. When we were going through biochemistry, all we needed was to get through school. <laughs> and we needed it later to save our lives, very different. <laughs> it's very different. And so um, at that time, what I started to learn about, um, just piecemealing it together, as you can imagine, was just like, how do I start to gently and effectively upregulate and clean out my cells one by one? Yeah, because if I went hardcore, I it backfired. If I went, you know, if I just ignored it, it backfired. It still took me another twenty years. Yeah, uh, no, two thousand thirteen, two thousand twelve, when I got my epigenetics uh, run to understand even further ways that my body was challenged in the way that it methylated or detoxified to even understand it further. But ultimately, I started to learn and carve out a path for myself, and then luckily had many willing thousands of willing participants to learn from and with over many decades at this point, you know, two, three, almost three decades later to watch this process 
us unfold. And that's where meeting people like you, you're taking it to the masses now in a, in a, a, a way that did not take 27 years to figure out. You're making it accessible right now. They don't have to wait and figure it out for a good 10, 12, 15 years on their own. They've got folks like you and I today guiding them. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. You know, when we look at um, the statistics uh, right now with cancer, you know, I mean, remind people of where we are with some of the cancers that are a little different per cancer, um, you know, and then let's move into the conversation. I mean, obviously, you've learned a lot. This is your passion. You know, I mean, my my desire for this is, okay, let's, you know, let's speak to people on how to avoid these st uh, statistics. And, and obviously, you know, my, my recommendation for those people who have a loved one, family member going through cancer, you know, get your book um, because you made it more simple. The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. Um, I, I, I recommended Thomas Seyfried's book to people and they, they're like, okay, I got through like <laughs> chapter one and I'm done, you know? So, okay. So I, I think you've done a much better job and no, Tom, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> and I think you would agree that uh, you did a better job of bringing this information. And, and you know, it, it's loaded with facts on here's what to do, here's what to eat, right? So, you know, get the book, and I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. But, you know, let, let's talk about some things that people can do uh, to avoid not becoming a statistic. The obvious right now is lower your carbohydrate intake. Yeah. Go ahead. Let, let's talk about that. What are the statistics? Yeah, well, I appreciate it because the statistics, I think, are the, the wake-up call. It's the call to action. And the statistics currently are one in two men, and one in 2.4 women are expected to have cancer in their lifetime in the United States. Okay, so that's our US, but it doesn't differ that much globally anymore. So that's number one. Number two, what's very interesting is um, we have said for years that it was one in eight women with breast cancer, but that is getting ready to be updated to one in three. That's wow. unfortunate. I mean, I know. I've been using one in eight still because of yeah. knowing that it's going down, but I didn't realize one in three. Boom. Yeah, one in three. By 2030, they're expecting cancer rates to double. Another interesting statistic is that there is a 300% increase in just secondary, brand new cancers in people who were previously diagnosed and treated with cancer since the 1970s. So that should give you a clue about the amount of toxicity, cellular toxicity, those folks are still contending with um, after treatment. And then the fastest, there's two interesting stats that also intrigue me about, uh, again, that ties into the work you're doing and what we're going to talk about next is the fastest growing cancer in people under the age of 35 is glioblastoma, okay, which is a form of very, very aggressive brain cancer. That's what took the life of Senator McCain. Mm -hmm. And even with all the resources in the world, he still followed the exact statistic and the exact time frame of his expected life expectancy, having the access to the best of the best healthcare, because frankly, they missed all the things they could have been doing, which makes me very sad. And I know people like Adrian Sheck and others reached out um, to their family, um, which is in their own backyard, but I need to there. Andrew Shrek uh, spoke at my seminar. Good. Oh, she's she got so a standing brilliant. ovation. She got a standing uh, ovation. Yeah. It doesn't surprise. I'm standing ovating her right now. <laughs> but that being said, is like we have information that's out there with different outcomes. People like Seafried, people like Dominique, people like Dr. Sheck have seen different outcomes. So have I in our clinical experiences. But it takes a different approach entirely. So that cancer, glioblastomas, I believe so much because it's a very sugar sunk cancer type, a very uh, glucose uptake type of cancer, but also think about what we have on and near our heads at all times. You ask, when I ask the patients about which side they wear their Bluetooth or um, mm -hmm. where they use their cell phone, it is almost always on the same side as their 
bone use, uh, the side of the tumor. So that's unfortunate. The other cancer fastest growing, and this is under the age of 24, is colorectal cancer. That should clue you in that precisely what we choose to put into our mouths and travel through that tube is having an impact. Absolutely. And that is so, so challenging to see young, 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 healthy people uh, diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancers um, more and more every day. Yeah, scary. I mean, just absolutely scary statistics. And, you know, when you look at statistics like one and two, uh, if you don't think it's going to be, you're, you're fooling yourself. But here's the problem, though, okay? Because right now, if you interviewed most of the public, they're hoodwinked into believing that it's just, they're just unlucky, that it's their genetics. Now, your, your husband is a genetic expert, right? So, um, you know, he would tell them differently. It's, it's not your genetics, it's epigenetics, meaning that there's certain stressors like toxins that turn on genes of susceptibility. Right. But here's the, here's the point. So what's going on right now in oncology? What's going on in medicine? Like, you know, meaning, is there a shift? Because they still are spending billions of dollars on genetic therapies when we know it's not the cause of cancer. What's your thoughts? So when we got all excited when the precision medicine movement came through with Dr. Biden's work and everyone was thinking, this is it, this is it. Unfortunately, it was basically for, it sounds a little bit rude, but basically putting lipstick on a pig because we were still following the same path. We were just kind of giving it a different filter to move through. So we started getting really aggressive about genomic testing we're forgetting about epigenomic testing or epigenetic testing and still looking for a single target with a single treatment and spending billions of dollars on therapies. Even the American Cancer Society will tell you that cancer itself is a collection of hundreds of diseases. So why do we still keep spending our valuable resources on single cause, single cure? Wow. It doesn't exist. And in fact, I'm, I'm the really bad bearer of bad news. I don't believe there is a cure for cancer because I think and believe, as do the researchers out there, that cancer is part of us, it is around us. It's what Absolutely. our terrain is telling it that keeps it in check. So I'm not looking or interested in curing this or fixing nope. this. I'm curious about keeping it dormant, keeping it part of who we are. Absolutely. So that's the place, and we're still in that embattled, you know, that battle cry, that war cry on this, that it's somehow something exogenous that we have to kill or extricate from ourselves to heal, and yet, I will tell you, and you will, you know, your other docs who will be speaking at this conference will tell you, there are multiple reasons why someone's terrain starts to let the cancer take hold and yes. pick up momentum. And yes, can you get lucky enough? Yeah, about 3% of the time with an absolute cure, quote unquote, with chemo, or about 12% of the time with radiation, or about 50% of the time with um uh, surgery, and yet 70% of the time there'll be a recurrence. Okay, these again are American cancer stats. And if someone's not taught the why they got there to begin with and the how to prevent it from coming back, they might have been lucky enough to take the first chemo and have a nice response. But when it comes back, it tends to be bigger, more aggressive, and less responsive to those previously cytotoxic therapies. So unfortunately, people like me, people like Dr. Jimenez and others that you'll have at your conference later in March, um, we're accustomed to seeing people who are maybe on their second, third, or fourth recurrence of cancer after multiple treatments that have left their cells, their mitochondria, even weaker than they were 
to their prior to their very first diagnosis. So that becomes much more of an uphill battle. So my goal is to catch people well before, because really the only cure is prevention. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it is. It, it's so sad because, you know, I, I think that people believe that we actually are making headway in cancer because that's what the commercials tell us that we're blessed to live in this day and age when wait a minute you know the statistics are getting worse not better despite the billions of dollars being spent i think if logical people knew the real facts they would say well wait a minute if that's the case we're spending billions of dollars with smart people researching and things are getting worse what is going on? Maybe, just maybe we're looking in the wrong area, right? Maybe this approach needs to be radically changed, you know, and, and, I, and yet we're still seeing billions of dollars being spent on these genetic therapies. Uh, and, and yet they keep crying out, you know, better testing, better tasting. We have better testing. And exactly. yet our numbers are still getting worse. You know, what the heck is going on? I mean, is there hope? I mean, I, you know, I wonder. Yeah, and it feels, believe you me, I've been at this for long enough, there has been so many times when I've probably been in a heap on the floor with my husband trying to console me of feeling quite hopeless and helpless, you know, in these situations. And part of this is perpetuated. I mean, just in the last year, we've had two studies coming out of, I believe, Harvard, um, basically saying, oh, it's just genetic roulette. It's just bad luck. You're kind of a sitting duck. You're sort of screwed. You have no impact on this. And yet just down the hall, you have people that are actually telling you completely otherwise. These are the people seeing this as a metabolic disease. So even within our brilliant academic institutions, we're having an infighting. And you have to look at who's funding a lot of those well, studies. You know, and I left. think that's the bad part is that there's yeah. an infighting because there's uh, you know doctors that know the truth. I, you know, Thomas Seyfried was 26 years in this field. And he pulled out and he got crushed. He lost all funding, right? The drug companies have the money to fund the thing. So the scientists are still doing it. They're getting funded, right? It's like the moment you step out of that arena, now you're on your own. It's like, now it's where are you going to get your funding and make a living? I mean, if people yeah. have to understand that, yeah. it still boils down to dollars and cents of why the money is going to what drug companies, this is a cash cow. You know, cancer is a cash cow for drug companies. Yeah. Fear is the greatest thing you know, that will, people will pay for. And so to step outside of that, uh, it, it's, it's a suicide if you're a scientist. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. My husband, um, uh, because of his epigenetics and his family of origin, every, they're actually a, a case study at Creighton University. That's how much cancer has afflicted his family of origin. He's the baby of 10 children. You know, his eldest brother died of pancreatic cancer. His middle sister had ovarian cancer, another sister with endometrial cancer, another with ovarian. Um, and, you know, like it's just, it's, just everywhere. And his parents died of cancer, just on and on and on. So he was interested and went into drug cancer design in grad school and was one of the main people and one of the main researchers and players in the KRAS protein. That won't mean much to some people here, but a few of your listeners might go, oh my gosh, this is 25 plus years old information that got buried because it wasn't a, 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 bang, a blockbuster drug, right? but it's being dusted off and repurposed and tried again because nothing else is working. And my husband can tell you like, it's gonna fail and fail miserably because the side effects and the profile that are so terrible, um, you know, they did great through animal studies, but once you got into humans, all broke loose, you know, it was just terrible. So he left that world um, thinking he could do more outside of the industry. He thought he could change it within, left it realizing he could do more 
out. It's people like um, the Believe Big organization who funded, who went out and funded the mistletoe trial happening at Hopkins right now, for instance. It's becoming more philanthropic donations to actually um, non-industry <laughs> driven research that may actually be what changes us out of this mess. Because if I, people, you know, or if people are like, I just want to know, I just want to learn, yeah. I want to see what could work, let's see what we throw at it and what sticks. That's very different than saying we're going to make this billion dollar drug and we're going to make it work no matter what because the industry is driving us to do so and we're going to keep our funding so we can do this. That's a very different ball game. Mm. Yeah, no, no doubt. What are some other, um, you know, obviously you're on the front lines here and the cutting edge. Yeah. Um, what are some other things? We're talking about diet. I, I believe without what we're talking about you teaching your book, uh, you're not going to, you know, really get your body in this state of balance, like you said, we all have cancer cells, right? But a healthy body is able to, you know, constantly get rid of the bad ones and fasting and the, you know, the, the low carbohydrate diets and ketosis, you know, that this is key. Um, what are some of the other th therapies right now? There's some other things on the horizon that you recommend that you have, you know, that are real. Yeah, well, mistletoe is probably the most studied integrative therapy that's been it's out not there. It's just not kissing under it. Exactly. Coming right out of the holiday season of this, but it is an injectable form. We've been using it for uh, continuously for 100 years. Um, it's a sub-Q injection uh, taught to the patient by their physician. It's prescription only. Uh, it's probably the most utilized integrative therapy worldwide, both in uh, sub-Q, intravenous, sub, uh, even intratumoral, intraperitoneal. We even put it, it right into uh, the ascites fluid of people's abdomens um, to dry up ascites fluid. I mean, it's an incredible therapy that is used as an adjuvant therapy to enhance outcomes of standard of care treatments, be it radiation, surgery, chemotherapy, but also in many patients, it has some direct cytotoxic impact to actually help um, kill off cancer cells and mostly by immunomodulating, upregulating the impact of the immune system, which is another key player. So the metabolic balance is key. That's the foundation. And then the immune function is also key. So for instance, if you have a teaspoon of sugar, you suppress your um, IgA and a lot of your immune cells for, for seven hours for each teaspoon you take in. And yeah. yet we're all living in that sugar burning state. So of course our immune systems are completely down-regulated. Mm -hmm. So getting low carb, upgrade, regulating your immune system. I know you have a lot of other speakers who are experts in how they do that mm -hmm. in their practices. Um, even the three-day fasting will upregulate your immune system entirely. It's like a total reboot. I mean, and it stimulates autophagy, so your body's eating the bad cells. It's that Got it. It'll, it exactly. knows cancer cells. It's going to not go for a healthy cell. It's going to go for a cell malfunctioning, and, exactly. and that's, that, that's the point. And then it upregulates a stem cell, right? Exactly. Got it. Exactly. And then the third, I mean, there's lots of, because we have 10 factors we talk about in the book, but if I had to kind of choose the top three that you could start to get your hands around right today would be what we've already covered, the metabolic, the immune upregulation. The third big one that goes really underappreciated in our culture is stress modification. And stress is the key driver. So having your body in a sympathetic, you know, fight or flight 
process is what encourages the cancer cells to move about the building. It drives metastasis, it drives um, the, the cells to embed into surrounding tissues and into the vasculature and the lymphatics. And that's what starts to get a problem. We don't die from primary tumors unless they crop up in a, in a very vulnerable place, like right against a vessel or right against a particular organ. We die of metastatic processes that change the metabolic expression of our body and basically starve our, our healthy cells to death. Most of us die from cachexia, yeah. which is not about calories. It's about a metabolic inflammatory angiogenic process that cannot be cured with boost and insure. I can insure you that. Well, <laughs> um, yeah. Adding yeah. sugar. You know that I mean? By the way, that's a take chemo and then people are eating sugar. It's like Oh yeah, the sugar. So I mean, I have patient after patient after patient have like taken photos of the chemo room that is just. I mean, it's like Coca Cola is is hosting this event at their hospital. There's cookies spread out everywhere and ham sandwiches on extreme, you know, crappy white bread and just all around. It's it's impossible to get away from. So if you're trying to fight against that dominant belief system. And you're in there by yourself eating your hard-boiled egg or not nothing at all. Everyone around you is making you feel like the freak, you know? And so that makes this even more challenging for the well-meaning, well-studied, thoughtful patient who are, who's trying to do it differently. They're literally being asked, do you need something to eat? Can I get you something to eat? Here's a cookie. Here's a cookie. Here's a cookie. And everyone's sort of saying, you need to eat something. You need to eat something. It's, you know, you came from the Italian family. It's like, eat, eat. It's our language of love. Something. <laughs> I, I grew up with that. I, my grandma, you need to eat something. So I'll eat a cookie. I'll, I'll eat, you know, it's like when, you know, the, the reality is no, eating nothing is actually better. You know, and then when I do finally get hungry, then I'll eat very good food. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's just kind of where we're up. And you asked earlier about hope in all of this. Now, you know, what's beautiful is conferences like yours, conferences that are getting ready to happen at the end of January, the Metabolic Health Summit at Low Carb USA and all these others, we're starting to get like-minded consumers, mm -hmm. like-minded researchers, like-minded clinicians, like-minded industry leaders and tech people and data people. Um, in fact, engineers have been blowing my mind at all these conferences. They've been, um, the, the tech world seems to be moving us further down the road of medicine than doctors. I'm mm -hmm. putting myself, you know, I'm so celebrating them for sure. But these gatherings are picking up momentum we're finding each other. We used to all be sort of weird little islands, but we're finding each other now and it's changing. And though I can't say much about it yet, I'm hoping in the next few months, I can talk to you about some exciting things that are happening at the level of our standard of care medical system that I'm, I, I am starting to see a glimmer of hope oh, and wow. light on the horizon in the realm of cancer therapy. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's good to hear, uh, you know, because oftentimes I, I think sometimes I, I get you know, negative because I see the money coming in from the drug company. Yeah. I think, how yeah. do we do that? You know, but you're right, though. I mean, these conferences are getting more and more. You know, we at this conference, we have Dominic D'Agostino talking, you know, I mean, just so much great information. He's worked with Thomas Seyfried, and I'm sure you know him well as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, and, and the answers are out there. It's just a matter of, you know, doing more of these conferences. You know, ultimately, when enough people start getting cancer, uh, you're right. The private funding will start to come in. Uh, because well, and that's who's funding some of these future projects I'm talking absolutely. about, where people that were big in the industry that lost a loved one that said, how is it possible with all this money and all this effort and all this time and all these brilliant brains, we aren't further 
down the road in this who have pulled out their resources and said, let's put it elsewhere. And I don't know, um, you've probably heard of Dr. Slocum and their group, Chemothermia in Turkey. Mm -hmm. This is a group of doctors, all extremely conventional, conventional, conventional oncologists who a few years ago had a colleague diagnosed with pancreatic cancer who died within 20 days. So here's these men who are looking back at their colleague going, how, how? Is this possible? And then they stumbled upon the work of people like Seifert and whatnot and started to incorporate into a very conventional, chemo-driven, Western, you know, uh, standard of care oncology yeah. environment, these metabolic therapies and are now having outcomes far greater than they experienced in the previous 50, 60 years of their careers. Wow. I mean, it's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 You know, it, it, it is amazing, you know, and, and let me tell you something. The people that I've seen, and I've interviewed many here on the show that have beat cancer, uh, and, and I say lasting, right? Because a lot of people will do chemo, like my uh, mother-in-law, and you know she did the standard of care, then 10 years later, almost to the day, she ended up with from breast cancer to uterine cancer. It happens all the time, but of course, they weren't connected. Now, you know, that's what the doctors told her. But you know, the ones that do beat it are the ones that are doing the things that we're, we're discussing here. Okay, so where would you, you know, we have, I want you to address two groups of people watching this, right? The group that has a diagnosis, has cancer, and the group that has a friend or a family um, member with cancer. You know, where do they start? Meaning the group with this friend or family member, what can they do to say, okay, you know, delicately say, you know, may, maybe there's another answer, you know, where do they do? And what about the person who has cancer? Where do they start? Such a good question. So first of all, number one, this is not a medical emergency unless it showed up in a very vulnerable place that made it so. So like if it showed up and it's pushing against and obstructing your colon, obviously that's an emergency. But if you just find out, oh my gosh, I have a lump or I've noticed this or they caught this on an x-ray or my blood work was weird, what happens then is you get thrown into an assembly line and one that's very aggressive and one that's very uh, standard of care and you're not given, you're basically a number and you're treated the exact same way in many situations, whether you're a stage zero or stage four, especially in the smaller medical environments, smaller towns, not in the more savvy testing uh, research environments. So number one, I remind people, take a breath, okay, stop. If you can avoid it, do not get immediately on Dr. Google and start looking for everything because most of the information you're going to run across is likely misinformation in the beginning. Okay. Yeah, I would say on both sides. Uh, uh, exactly. The medical side exactly. and the alternative side, you're going to get bad information. Nailed it. That's exactly what like both. You're, and then it's going to be even more confusing. Mm -hmm. So number two, it took you an average of seven to 10 years to have that cancer collect enough cells to get big enough and loud enough to capture our attention and get the diagnosis. Right. So seven or 10 years, you've got seven or 10 days or seven or 10 weeks to do some due diligence, do some research, get a second, if not third opinion from your standard, America, uh, standard of care team, find out what their thoughts are. While you're doing that, if you have the, um, if you had a biopsy, have that sent off for molecular profiling, get a tissue assay, always, every patient should have this offered. It should not be asked for. You only get it um, offered in places where they're doing research for a treatment for that target. But people like myself, we can look at the targets and still know what's in our toolbox and what the metabolic personality is of that tumor. 
So for instance, it might be high in a PIK3C, which is very much a sugar-sucking cancer type of thing, right? Or a P10 process or some of these others that might help us say, yeah, you really need to get on the low-carb bandwagon right away. The other thing is to get some basic labs because the only thing they're interested in is to make sure your white blood cells are high enough to be able to get your next chemotherapy infusion. There is a lot more going on under that hood that can be easily seen on basic blood tests. So the basics, if nothing else, I want people to get a CBC with differential, a metabolic panel, preferably that includes a GGT, that can show us glutathione detoxification status, particular liver enzyme. Also a C-reactive protein, which is a prognostic factor in all cancer types, an LDH, which used to be run as part of our um, chem panels, but it's been left out for the last 10 years or so, a lactase dehydrogenase, which actually shows me the state of your metabolic health in general, and an, an ESR or a sedimentation rate. It goes by both names. When those three tests, the last ones, ESR, SED rate, or excuse me, ESR, LDH, and CRP are all elevated, that is kind of a metabolic tsunami going on in your body. That's when I know cancer's more in the driver's seat than you are. Mm. If you have all three of them within functional normal ranges, then no matter what the diagnosis, what's on the scan and what's on your markers, you are still in the driver's seat. You have not been taken hostage. Okay. And wow. so that information lets me know how aggressive we need to be with whatever therapies, conventional, non-conventional combination, right? That is a simple step. That out-of-pocket testing runs about $105 in most walk-in wow. labs. No it's excuse. worth it's like, seriously, there's a nice dinner out with your loved one, go and run some laps, okay? Then your, bet, your next important step is to put together your dream team, period. That dream team may include a standard of care oncologist, or surgeon, or radio oncologist, right? That, that's absolutely critical because we need diagnostics, we need testing, we need to know where we are. But you absolutely, I mean, I would not want to come to me and ask me automotive advice when I've never worked on a car in my life, um, just like I would never ask a physician nutritional advice who's never had, um, you know, when less than 25% of all medical schools were even offered an elective course in it. Please don't ask for medical advice from doctors unless they've been specifically trained above and beyond RD nutrition. And frankly, I'm going to upset some of your listeners, RD nutritionists, because they're industry-driven nutrition. Now, and we have a lot of recovering RD nutritionists. I know a lot follow you, and we see a lot of them at these conferences, but they're funneled into a particular belief system yeah. and value system that is frankly not therapeutic. It's just kind yeah. of enough to keep you from getting scurvy. You know? So you need a therapeutic nutritionist. And you need someone who's going to help you work on the stress of all of this, whether it's a life coach, a good friend, a pastor, um, a, a, a therapist, you know, somebody who's going to help you kind of navigate the mental, emotional. Um, if you're someone who uh, knows that you've got some good, reliable, trusted resources of an integrative um, oncologist or integrative naturopathic or functional medicine or chiropractic, uh, cancer-centric practitioner, that's a bonus but there are far and few between. And so hopefully in the next couple of years, that will be a different story because I imagine them to be on everybody's cancer team in the, in the not so distant future. But my point is do not put all your eggs in the basket of your standard of care because you will only get the standard. You deserve a lot more than that, especially yeah. if you do not want to be that statistic. And it's folks like us who can help you navigate this yeah. territory. Yeah, you, know, you need someone on, on that side who understands truly understands the low carb thing, right? I, you know, the, I mean, you know, understands fasting, 
you know, yeah. when it would be beneficial, when it wouldn't. I mean, you know, really, you need that. And then this, the detoxification done at the cellular level, critical. Yeah. You know, Warburg, critical. His, his original cell, he talked about environmental toxins, how that is affecting the mitochondria, where yeah. the respiration goes bad. As right. it, and he even said, he said, I don't quite understand it. You know, <laughs> I don't understand its role quite yet, but I, I know it's a factor. I don't even know to what degree, but he knew it was a factor. Now today, we know it's even more of a factor than we think of what can Big time. the cell to go bad. Well, and that's what I thought was so brilliant is this is 1920, he was saying, oh, something's off. And people like Weston A. Price, and the Pottinger, um, Dr. Pottinger, um, were also in the background saying, oh my gosh, we're killing ourselves with our diets. This is in 1920, only yeah. a few, yeah. 50 to 75 years past the initiation of the industrial that. food revolution. Yeah, I mean. A hundred years yeah. later, we've really got ourselves in a pickle. Um, and, and when you talk about it, my husband being a biochemist, he's also, I mean, he'll, he'll tell you, and others tell you that um, arsenic and mercury are about the worst mitochondrial poisons out there. And they're just everywhere. Hyperdose corn syrup, coal burning plants, our, our water you know, source, a lot of our food sources, it's just eggs. Oh, yeah, I was like laying and saving that for last because that's the most <laughs> obvious. Um, but it's incredible. Incredible to me that we are, as my uh, friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Walter Crinian, who's an expert in the field of environmental medicine, has said it's not about if you have toxicity, it's about how much and how you biochemically individually process it based on your epigenetics and other, other factors. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I'd love to interview your husband on the show because, you know, I mean, a lot of people are doing the SNP testing and, and there's yeah. benefit. It shows weaknesses, et cetera, but yeah. it's the epigenetics that really is much different. People don't yeah. understand the differences and we're not going to define it here. But yeah. the point is, is I would love to interview your husband. So, you know, yeah. and everyone him. loves him. You guys, if you thought this was fun, you wait till you talk to Steve. <laughs> so you guys will really have a, a hair, a hair, um, uh, fast yourselves again. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I would love to because people awesome. don't understand epigenetics, yeah. and epigenetics is really the key. The key. You know, toxins and stressors trigger these genes. Yeah. That's the key. And and you know, I teach a lot of that in my stuff because we want to turn off the gene. It's part of you know what's important. But you won't turn off the gene for your whatever cancer susceptibility you have if you still have the stressors and toxins being one of them you know and and that's why you have to put your team together folks i hope you heard yeah. that you know yeah. because you know in these things that we're talking about it's not just one person you know when i get on these teams i know exactly my role you know it's like my role's not over here in diagnosing my role's not even over here on you know trying to kill the cancer cells i stay in my lane so exactly uh, i thought that was good. okay so the last question was what do we do um with the person who's watching this that they want to tell their mother, their loved one, their friend about this, you know, this could go south real quick. What's your advice to them? <laughs> well, it's interesting because I get this question a lot and especially through like my social media, someone's like my aunts, da, 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 I'm scared to tell them. I mean, first of all, I think the way you, the tone, the way you approach it is, hey, I heard this great podcast or hey, I read this book and it was very interesting to me. If you're interested, I'm happy to send you a link or send you a copy of it. You know, more of just an invitation, I think, mm -hmm. is there. Sometimes the best place to start, though, is to say, what do you need? What resources do you have? How do you feel most supported right now? And how can I most support you? That might be your perfect opening is more started out as a question yeah. of, 
hey, what do you need? If you're like, I'm just overwhelmed and I don't even know where to start, then it's something like, you know, my book, or even when you talked about uh, Dr. Seyfried's book, I often have them read Travis Christopherson's instead. I told, I'm like, Travis's book is like the Cliff's Notes of Dr. <laughs> of Dr. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Thomas's book. So, you know, that's an invitation. Or luckily, it's conversations like this, podcasts like this that are out there that people can watch in a matter of, you know, less than an hour and mm -hmm. learn a lot and then see if that resonates with them. And if it does, you know, I'll I tell you, they'll find us. I should have gotten Travis at the seminar, uh, Ashley, oh, maybe yeah. we have a spot, you know. There you go. There, well, I could get up there and we could do a little duet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, if you have his email, give it to Ashley. I will, I, I will. I should reach out to him because you're right. He does make it simple. And that is a great book. Uh, yeah. You know, and unfortunately, I read it after I read Safery. So you know, it was <laughs> yeah. a I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. I should have read this first. But anyway, you know, what, what a great show. And, you know, thank you so much uh, for, I think, inspiring our listeners and our viewers here, because uh, I think you do the hope that people need. There is an answer. I mean, just your story alone, like mine, is, is enough hope, right? There's a different way. There's an answer. And folks watching this, share this with as many people as you can. Because as you pointed out, it, it's, it's these podcasts, it's the seminars. You know, that's the key. If we can keep getting this message out that there is, in fact, another way. Uh, and just another view, you know, of this whole thing that you don't cure cancer. There is no cure. And by the way, that sounds negative to people. But it's actually a positive when people understand it. So share the show. Thank you so much. What a, what a blessing uh, you've brought our audience, no doubt about it. Oh, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Hey, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors, Cytodetox. Look, podcasts cost money. There's a lot of production uh, going around this, but uh, we are grateful to have Cytodetox as one of the sponsors. It's so easy for me to talk about the product because myself and my family use it constantly as we practice what I preach for over 15 years. I've talked about and taught doctors and the public about cellular detox. And I'll tell you, Cyto was a breakthrough. Cyto was a breakthrough for us. Um, and it's changed so many lives. So we're grateful that they sponsor Cellular Healing TV. It makes sense, doesn't it? They should. If you're listening to this podcast and want to access the amazing Cyto Detox product Dr. Pompa just mentioned, please visit detoxoffer.com. Again, that's detoxoffer.com. Well, that's it for this week. The materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not to be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you would like to purchase some of the supplements mentioned on this show, please visit the site as seen on chtv.com and use the code chtv15 for 15% off. Again, that's as seen on chtv.com. Use the code chtv15 for 15% off. And as always, thanks for listening.